thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I read about a world champion boxer. He was in one of the lighter weight classes, so his name was not so well known. And he had a bout scheduled and a challenger who was a worthy challenger, but one who was not necessarily figured to win the bout in question. So the two contestants went to the middle of the ring. They heard what the referee had to say regarding the ground rules of the event. They went to their respective corners standing there. When the bell rung, they got after each other. As it turned out, the challenger, who had been taken too lightly by the champion, was having his way with the champ. The champ, when the final bell rang at the end of the first round, he went over to his corner, sat down, and he heard these words from his manager. Champ, you're doing great. He's not laying a hand on you. And then he looked around and he said, you better keep an eye on the referee because somebody's beating the daylights out of me. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way about your walk with the Lord? Do you sometimes sense that there has to be more in terms of victory than in terms of defeat? You've long grown tired of knowing the agony of defeat. And now you want to be a person who really shares in the victory. Do you know God created us in Christ Jesus to be victors? And the key to victory, the Bible says, is that we are living by faith and not by sight. This is the victory that overcomes the world. And that is our faith. It's what John writes in 1 John chapter 5. But the Bible also says we have an adversary. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil likes nothing more than to intimidate us into cowering in a corner as defeated followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, of course, knew that this would be part of our experience. And therefore, we have this passage of Scripture from the pen of the Apostle Paul, but from the heart of the Holy Spirit of God. We need to know our adversary if we're going to win. Anyone who has played sports, especially if you were a boxer, you had to study your opponent. And by the way, this teaching carries with it the idea, it's very clear, if we could read the original language, we wouldn't have any problem knowing that the usage of the word you in this passage of Scripture, and also, not only that, the kind of wrestling match or battle that is described here is one that was one-on-one. -on -one. It's close up and personal. And so this message is not just for 
a broad spectrum of people. It would include a very select group of people who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. And it would have great promise for you today if you're here and you're beaten up by life and you do not know Christ. Maybe you just wandered in here or came because you were seeking some help and you need peace in your life. Well, I'm here to tell you, not because I'm the spokesperson, but because I know what the Scripture says in this passage of Scripture when it comes to overcoming our enemy. He loves to bully us. The image of a roaring lion. I think, uh, I think it's the MGM people. You know that head of that brilliant male lion comes on and he roars. Well, the devil has a louder roar than that. But that's all he's got when it comes to dealing with us. A lot of people think of Satan as being an equal with God. Where you've got dualism, as it used to be called and still is in some circles. You've got a good God and a bad God. Our God is God the Father revealed in Jesus Christ. Is what people think, maybe on the outside looking in. And over here, you've got Satan. And there's a question about who's winning. In fact, sometimes even people who know Christ think that the devil's winning over us as his children. We know better. I was talking to a brother last week, new, new man in Christ. In the conversation, our conversation turned to Satan, and I could tell that he had misinformation about the devil. This man is a smart man, well-educated, articulate man, but he had a wrong impression about one aspect of the nature of the devil. He did not know that the devil was not ever-present, all-present, omnipresent, as the theologians say. Do you know the devil can only be in one place at one time? Now, we know from this passage of Scripture that he has his minions, and there is a strong suggestion that those who serve under his command are in different groups that he has assigned, perhaps even for different assignments. But nevertheless, he cannot be in more than one place at one time. He is the ruler of this world. That's what the Bible says. He is in control of the world. And he has to have permission from God because God's God, not part God or an inferior God or an even equal God. God has control of the devil in the long run. We see that in Scripture. So, we want to know about the devil. You could probably say, if I took a show of hands of people who say, I'd like to speak about one of the qualities of the devil. Quality has a positive connotation, so I probably chose a bad word. Characteristics of the devil. The ones that show up in Jesus' teaching in the book of John include that Jesus calls him a liar. Is Satan a liar? How long has he been a liar? From the beginning of his domain, there is a suggestion in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel that at one time he was perhaps even the highest among the archangels. We know the name Gabriel. It was he who delivered the news to Mary that she was going to bear a son who would be the savior of the world. 
We know the name Gabriel, do we not? Gabriel, he's also an archangel. His name shows up in the scripture. But there's another name, Lucifer. It means light. More precisely, it means one who is the radiance of brilliant light. This was a name that Satan had before he rebelled against God the Father. And in his rebellion, he was expelled from his place in the kingdom of God. And he produced a counterfeit kingdom. Let's take a moment to think what Jesus said about him. Jesus said about the devil, he said, he is a liar. And he's been a liar from the beginning. Perhaps you know about the temptation story that's found in the book of Genesis chapter 3. When Satan came in the form of a serpent. And what did he do? He tempted Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she didn't give in quickly. But in the conversation, she said as one of the reasons she should not eat, that God had told Adam and her that if they ate it, they would die. In that cagey, lying devil, he came forth and said, I imagine in a very persuasive way, with a smile on his serpent's face, he said, surely you will not die. And she took the bait, didn't she? And Adam did too, by the way. Even though his name is not mentioned, in the book of Romans we are told he's the one who's responsible for sin. It's not pinned on Eve. Evidently, he was listening himself and he could have intervened and protected his wife from making such an error and falling into sin and taking the whole human race with her and with him. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He masquerades, the Bible says, as an angel of light. So be careful and be discerning. Ask the Spirit of God to help you to know the difference between a genuine angel and a fallen angel, the archangel angel, Satan himself, formerly known as Lucifer. Also, Jesus says that he is a murderer, liar, murderer. And he said that he's been a murderer from the beginning, just like he's been a liar from the beginning. He is also the prince of the power of the air, is how he's described earlier in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. And in addition to that, the Bible talks about he is the ruler of a domain of darkness. That's probably an image to describe a life that is not in any way enlightened, a life that is full of heartache and difficulty and anger and all the things that could be associated with the devil being a leader in the darkness. Well, we need to know our adversary. Any strategist of military activity who's worth his or her salt, always wants to know the enemy. We must know the enemy in order to be people who overcome him. Let's move on from our adversary. Enough about him. 
And let's look now at our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. Do you know what an advocate is in the Bible? It's someone who comes alongside of another person and leads that person, encourages that person, and is a protector of that person, defends that person. We need defense, don't we? If the devil's accusing us, as the Bible says in the book of Revelation 12, 10, he accuses the brothers day and night. So what does God do for us? He sends his son, who among other things is our advocate. He's our defense attorney when we're under accusation. So Jesus is the one in whom we are to take refuge all the time, not just when we sense we're under pressure and under trouble, under attack, but at all the times we are to be such people. If you can imagine two circles, on the right there is a circle and there's one word written in it. It's the name Christ. On the other is a, a shorter word and it's the word sin. The Bible says that all people born descendants of Adam, that would be all of us, we all are born with his nature after he disobeyed and fell from his position of grace with God. He was a sinner. So sin in this circle, Christ in the other. What does the Bible tell us about Jesus Christ? He who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, Jesus knew no sin. He was God in spirit form before He became one of us. He retained His deity. He retained His perfection. He lived a perfect life. Hence, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And may I ask you, where did he become sin? It was on the cross, wasn't it? He went to the cross under orders of the Father. He submitted willingly to being crucified as a common criminal, experiencing all the terrible aspects of that, the physical aspects, horrible. But even more horrible was the fact that because God the Father has such pure eyes, He can't even look on sin. God the Father called darkness. Remember during the crucifixion how a darkness came over the face of the earth? And it should not have happened meteorologically or universally. Why? Because it was not the time that the, there could be an eclipse. So what was the source of this, it was God's turning His eyes away, turning His back on Christ when Christ was dying for our sin. And the Bible says, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you, I think He would have emphasized that, why have you forsaken me? All of His companions had forsaken Him. Why? And the answer Jesus knew I know, Father, so that I could forgive them of their sins. This is our Lord. God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, 
to become sin for us. On our behalf is the way it's translated. And the wording in the original language is a word which means to stretch yourself out over somebody to cover and protect that person. That's what the word means. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. Look at these pieces of armor. And notice before you look at them that we're to put on all the pieces of the armor. We can't pick and choose. If we want to be victorious in this life, personally and part of a group, we must put on all the pieces of the armor. And this passage will teach us what that constitutes. But also, in order to win over the devil, we have to stand firm. James' epistle, I love James, what he says, and he condenses this, but it's impactful when you think about it. He says, first of all, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit? It means to let go and let God be God. Take your hands off the steering wheel of your life, so to speak, in order that Christ can drive your life and lead you and lead you into the way everlasting. Submit yourself, therefore, before God. And then what's the next statement? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's all James says. And it really capsulizes this greater, more elaborative explanation. And really, we're grateful for this explanation because it gives more insight into what we must be and do in order to overcome our enemy, the devil, by the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's look at these pieces of the armor of God in verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Belts are important for people who go to war. Can you imagine your trousers, if you were a soldier, always kind of falling down, you're trying to get them up and trying to fight off an opponent. Remember, this is hand-to-hand combat that is declared here. And the soldiers in the Roman army had a rather sizable belt that went across their midsection, and they wore it. It had capacity to be tightened more in certain situations. And they wore a free-flowing garment. We wouldn't call it a dress, but it was one that could be a negative and a liability instead of an asset for the soldier. You see, when the war was begun and the legionnaire encountered an opponent, he, in getting ready, he would reach down and take the hem of that garment and tuck it under and tighten the belt so that it would not be a hindrance to him when the hand-to-hand combat began. What does Paul say the belt of truth is? It's the truth, isn't it? This is the place we begin and end when it comes to winning over the devil. When Jesus was tempted after 40 days of fasting, the devil came to him and very cleverly twisted some things 
that had an element of truth in them. And in each case, Jesus, of course, was savvy to what he was saying. And what did he do? Jesus responded by quoting Scripture. Jesus, the God-man, quoted Scripture. And interestingly enough, the Scripture comes from one section in the book of Deuteronomy. So Jesus evidently had been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy when he was approached by the devil to be tempted by him. So we put on the belt of truth, the Word of God. Please, please, don't see the Bible as some kind of book on religion. It's the book on life. It's the way God is. We get to know who He is, which is most important. But then we also, having getting to know him, gotten to know Him, what we also know is it's His design for life. How are we supposed to live? We're to live according to His Word. And He gives us all this information. You say, hey, Mike, that's a pretty big book. And I have other things to do with my life. And I just can't get this all at once. Some people have occasionally come to me, very few and far between, who said, can you give me a condensed version of this so I can get it because I'm busy? Well, it just takes time. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, the way we're to read the Bible is line upon line, precept upon precept. One word, one verse at a time. And do you know the cumulative impact of that is remarkable and powerful in your life? If you will just set aside time regularly to open the Bible, not to satisfy some religious regulation, because it's about a relationship building. We come to know God as He reveals Himself and His will to us through the Word of God. Begins with putting on the belt of truth. Look at the second piece. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate was that which would be put on the thorax, as we call it. That part of our body which underneath are all the vital organs with the exception of the brain. All those. You can see how important that would be in hand-to-hand -hand combat, can't you? And so these men had that kind of garment. And it was not solid metal. Like when I think of armor, really, my mind goes back to my boyhood days when I loved to watch movies about the Knights of the Round Table, medieval knights, and so forth and so on, where they were, looked like they couldn't even move. They were those kind of metal kind of breastplates were put on them. But this one had some metal, but it was helpful. It helped deflect the attack of the enemy to try to get at the soldier's vital parts and cut him to the heart. The heart is often mentioned, isn't it, as it relates to our relationship to God? We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart. The heart, when we study the word in the way it's used in our English Bibles is that which does include the emotions. We normally think of the heart as something expressive of our emotions. 
but it also has to do with the mind. You can see that in Scripture. And the will. So it's the combination of heart, will, and mind. And you really need to take it in its opposite way that I referred to it, mind, will, and emotions. All of those things are part of what it means to be human. None of them in and of themselves can be part of who we are in order to be men and women who take care of our heart for God's sake. But when we see this passage of Scripture where it says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, have you ever been in a period of your life where you felt like you were just being bombarded by some outside force and maybe you were able to connect it to the devil about how lousy you are and how crummy you are and it just all these horrible things and thoughts were coming into your mind about you I'm going to say today what we looked at a little earlier that Satan is the accuser of the brothers and he specializes in coming against us and saying, you're no good. Well, the reality is the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. But remember what we saw earlier. God the Father made Jesus the Son to become what? Sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Going back to the two circles. Do you know if you're in Christ when God the Father looks at you, do you know what He sees? He sees Christ. And He sees you in Christ. And He does not hold your sin against you. Why? Because He's put it on Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are righteous in Christ. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the last verse or two, it says Jesus Christ, among other things, is your righteousness. Bank on it. Believe it. Count on it. Jesus is our righteousness. And therefore, when the Lord looks at us, He's all-knowing. He's not simply all-present. His deity makes Him all-knowing. He knows a word I'm going to speak before I ever Speak it, the Bible says in Psalm 139. And if that were not scary enough, He knows every thought I think before I think it. He knows every deed I do before I act it out. This is David writing. A human being who was close to God. But God sees you and me in Christ as forgiven. And never to be liable to be punished God the Father is a good Father. And any good Father disciplines those whom He loves. That's what the Bible says, right? So God does discipline us. But it's not for any benefit of His being satisfied. His need to be satisfied for the sin that we committed against God has been fulfilled in Christ. So when He sees us, he sees us in Christ as righteous. And He disciplines us when we sin. And here's how it begins. Holy Spirit, who is God, He comes and pricks our heart. And sometimes He kind of pounds on the door. 
I have visitation from the Holy Spirit frequently because I do sin more often than I would like to think. But when I do sin, a blessing comes. The Holy Spirit puts his finger on my heart and he says, Mike, And I say, sorry, Father. And it's not a flippant kind of sorry. It's not sort of, oh, no, here we go again, Lord. You know me. I'm prone in that direction. No, it's not that. I feel it in my heart, and I am sorry for it. I confess it. If we confess our sin, what does the Bible say he does? He forgives us our sin and purifies us from how much unrighteousness? All. That's our birthright as children of God. So we fasten the belt of truth. Truth is important in defeating the devil. And also we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Is righteousness important to overcoming the devil? Yes. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He empowers us to overcome. Look at number 14, stand form there, having fastened, excuse me, I'm, I've already done that. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Shoes are important to people in battle. They were very important to Roman soldiers. And the shoes which they wore were sort of a modified sandal. And on the bottom, there would be pieces of glass and pieces of metal, spikes, if you will. And they helped the individual to get his grounding. But if he were knocked off his feet, I mean, you could use your feet to fight. Have you ever seen anybody use his or her feet to fight? Well, of course you have. Maybe you've done the same thing. So it gives us what we need in terms of being ready to share the gospel of peace. I'm convinced that the thing that Satan hates most and worries most about me and you as followers of Christ is that we can be among those people that Paul writes about in Romans 10 where he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news i.e. the gospel, to help other people who've never heard about Jesus, about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit uses that to convict them of their sin, and they are ushered in to the family of God. Their sins are forgiven, and they become part of the army of God to accomplish the purpose that God has left us here on earth, to glorify Him by bearing much fruit, says Jesus. So, we have this footing in Christ. Keep your place here and please turn back a few books to the book of Romans, another writing of the Apostle Paul in the 16th chapter, in the 20th verse, Romans 16, 20. Paul writes to the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Does this connect in some way to where we're told to fit our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? I believe it does. Let me explain. 
The one thing that Satan doesn't want us to do is tell the people about Jesus. He, there are other things, but I think this tops the list. Why? He knows that what Jesus says about him is true. He says, when the last person comes to know him and has eternal life, the last person whom God has earmarked to be a follower of his, then the end will come. And what's going to happen to the devil when the end comes? He's going to be totally disarmed. He's going to be sent in ultimately to the lake of fire where he will remain forever. He'll be tormented forever. So when I or you put on the feet of the gospel of peace and we share Christ with others. Now, this probably explains what is likely true of you. It has been of me. I can make every excuse in the world to once having heard the Lord speak to me about speaking to someone about Jesus in the gospel, to do other things that may be good, may be God-honoring even. But I put off and put off going and sharing Christ. When I'm in a casual contact with someone I don't know, and I have this sense in my heart that I should share Christ with this person whom I don't know, that argument comes up again. This person doesn't want to hear from you. She doesn't know you from a man in the moon. He doesn't know you. Just keep your mouth shut and mind your business. Well, that's not the Holy Spirit. Because God uses people who are willing and have put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. And you may say, I don't know the gospel. Well, read it. I'm not talking the whole thing. You, you know, we've been given a very simplified version of it by Paul and by the Holy Spirit. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised again. And there is some explanation there that we're all sinners, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that he's raised from the dead, we will be saved. That took less than a minute for me to say that. Just a little elaboration. The Lord saves people by the power of the gospel, the message. And all of you and I are able to do that. It's just ignoring the intimidation of the devil. Remember, he's a roaring lion. I guarantee if you and I were somewhere on a plains of Africa on a safari and our guide found a place for us to camp in a tent overnight and in the middle of the night we heard this loud roar. It just shook everything around us. It would scare us to death, wouldn't it? Were it not for the fact that we were protected by people who are professionals and understood the way of the lion. Well, look, we've got more than someone who will just calm our fears. We have him for sure. But also we have his power. And we're to do what he's called us to do in his power. Let's go back now to the book of Ephesians and go a little further. We 
got three elements, haven't we? That are the armor of God, the truth. We put on the belt of truth, righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, and then the gospel of peace. Peace. People want those things. And we who know Christ already have them in our own life. Look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The, feel in, the shield in question here is not a round shield that a, a fighter would take if he were right-handed. He would have the shield in his left hand and then he would use his right hand to fight with a sword. It was not that kind of shield. It was really more like a door. But we have learned from archaeological discoveries that these shields were about two and a half feet wide and about four feet long. And they could be placed in front of the individual as he fought. Or you've seen pictorial recreations of this where a, a legion of Roman soldiers are fighting and the enemy is coming and the enemy is getting ready to barrage them with arrows, sometimes flaming arrows. And what do they do? They huddle together and they put those big shields over until the enemy has exhausted all the arrows and then they go after the enemy. Got it? Well, this is what we have. The, sh the shield of faith. How does faith come into your life? How do we grow in faith? The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God or the Word of Christ. So we put ourselves in a position to hear God. We're coming back to the Word of God again. And this is a, a, an underlying thread in all of this. We come back and we hear the, the Lord and we are able to overcome faith. There's probably uh, an area uh, or two in your life where you're very vulnerable. And probably it has to do with the mind. Some of you are fearful. And you've been shown that your fear is unfounded. And it's not as big as your imagination has made it become. But it doesn't matter how smart the person is, how convincing he might be in his wording, it doesn't matter because you still feel that. Or maybe you're a person, and this is a sister of fear, you're anxious. You can put in whatever area or two you struggle with. The scripture addresses them, all of them. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. In other words, all the things that you have promised you will do for me, Lord. They protect me. And when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And God, whose word I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal men do to me? They are from the Psalms. That, I've quoted that to myself many times when I found my heart palpitating, beating, because I was faced with a decision that I had to take. And there were men there who were opposed to me, but I knew I was doing what the Lord said to do. And I just said no to myself, no to my fear, no to my anxiety. And lo and behold, the Lord did what He promised He would do. So be a woman of faith.
be a man of faith. Be a woman of the Word. Be a man of the Word. Listen to the Lord. And write down passages. Star them. Underline them. Highlight them in your Bible that have to do with your overcoming those problems, those fears, those anxieties. Why? Because you're meditating on God's Word and you're taking up the shield of faith and your faith is growing in the process. Look at verse 17. Take up the helmet of salvation. What part of the body does the helmet protect? Obviously, the brain. And so we need our minds to be protected by the Lord. The Bible says remarkably, says, this is an incredible truth, that we have, who know Christ, we have the mind of Christ. So we have access to the way He thinks. And we have it in the Scripture, do we not? And so we, when our salvation is being hammered because of misbehavior on our part as followers of Christ, or just ignorance on our part, what do we have to do? We just go back and say, Lord, I believe what you say about yourself, and I believe what you say about me as your follower. Lord, help me to abide in you and your words abide in me that whatever I do will be positive for you, Lord, and I'm going to trust you to set me free with the truth. So far, what do we have? Truth, peace. What else do we have? We have a, a power to overcome with the truth of God's Word. We are righteous before God. All these things are ours. But look at the concluding aspect of the, or the armor of God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word translated sword is not a long sword, a broad sword. Actually, it's a 18 inch to 24 inch blade. And remember, all this discussion is about hand-to-hand -hand combat. So it would stand to reason it would be a smaller sword, but it was for close-up action in helping us to overcome the evil one. And the sword of the Spirit, what is it? The Word of God, isn't it? The Word of God. God speaks to us. There's one way to overcome the enemy, and one way only, is by taking up the sword of the Spirit and taking the Scripture into our own hearts and minds and then acting on what we are told we are to do and the power that we have in Christ, not in and of ourselves. Because look at verse 10 again. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. From where does our strength come? It comes from the Lord. You and I are at no disadvantage if we are temperamentally fearful or cowardly. It is not for you if you are a person who is very strong-willed and ready to fight at the drop of a hat and are apt to win the fight. 
That doesn't go well either. If you do that, you might win a few temporary skirmishes, but in the end, you're going to be worse off than you were in the beginning. It's about our realizing we have to take up the armor of God. It's His strength, not ours. And we know that Jesus is our strength as we trust in Him. This is what will happen. All the aspects of the armor of God we are to take up. One last comment from the pen of Paul and the Spirit of God. It's found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. and says, The weapons of our warfare, talking about believers, are not of the flesh, meaning not of the ways of man. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful to destroy the strongholds of the devil. Does God have a stronghold in your life? Something that you, does Satan rather have a stronghold in your life? Something you can overcome? Well, you know what? The Lord can and He will. If you will let go and let God be who He wants to be in your life. Surrender to Him and watch Him work. And He will equip you to overcome your own sin, your own selfishness, and He will use you for the rest of your life to glorify Him. Let's pray. Father, I again come to say thank You for today to be able to be with these brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank You, Lord, that coming here together makes it more palatable and easy to know You as a person. I do pray for people who are here who are inquirers. They don't yet know You. Lord, I pray that You would not let them rest until they give You control of their lives. Help them to come to know You as those of us who have been graced by You have come to know You. And we pray this church will be a church that is an overcoming church filled with members who put on the whole armor of God. Use us, Lord, to glorify You and to bring Your kingdom into this world as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.